0: Thank you so much, uh, Trevor. Uh, it's wonderful to be back in Lethbridge. I first came to uh, a SACPA talk, I think it was about 1992, uh, stayed over with uh, Gordon and Sylvia Campbell's place, uh, and I was back in uh, May um, 2007 to speak to SACPA. Um, so it's wonderful to be here and to be in Alberta again. Um, I left uh, three years ago. Um, Unfortunately, I've, uh, I've been fated to live in, uh, under the two longest uh, progressive conservative dynasties in Canadian history. Um, and then, just before they're going to fall, I leave the province three years before. So uh, I live in Ontario, where I grew up, um, and that, there was a conservative dynasty there from 1943 to 1985. So I lived there for 38 years of that, moved to Alberta. Three years later, the conservative dynasty fell. So then I lived through 30 more years of uh, progressive conservative government, and I left in 2012. Three years later, uh, it fell again. Now, I wonder if there's any cause and effect here. Uh, When I told this to Linda McQuaig. She said, you better leave Canada right now. <laughs> well, I didn't, and thank God I didn't have to. Um, okay, uh, why After the Sands book title? Well, this is not a book about the sands. There are a, a number of books uh, on, uh, on that. Very good. This is about how to get to After the Sands uh, to phase them out and I wrote this book in order to uh, get to that end more, that goal, more quickly. Um, now, it's important to do climate action and uh, energy as a human right uh, to do that work at the international level, the national level, and the local level. And, and all of those levels are equally important. This book is on the national, this book is about Canada. Well, why don't I call them the sands rather than the tar sands and the oil sands? have a debate in Alberta. As soon as you say oil sands, you are labeled by the environmentalists to be a promoter. If you call them the tar sands, you get labeled as, as a, a naysayer. and Neither side will listen to you as soon as you use the term. Um, so I'm, I just call them the sands a more, a more neutral term, although I'm not a neutral about them. But I do want to lower the 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 debate's temperature about that. It's almost impossible to uh, get published in Alberta uh, in the mainstream media without uh, being part of the uh, branding effort of of Big Oil to call them the oil sands. Uh, I I had an uh, uh, op-ed run in the Edmonton Journal last month and the, the title of my book is After the Sands. I call them the sands. Every reference I made to the sands, they changed to oil sands. Uh, <laughs> you can't... <laughs> it doesn't matter what the author said. So, you know, there was a, there was a, a rebranding effort 20 years ago because the, the tar sands sounded too dirty, so they, they, they want to clean up the image. Um, the book's cover... Well, it's, a very, it's an optimistic one. This is not a book like The End of, The End of Nature, The End of. This is an optimistic one. So right here, the bottom, you see the pipelines. This is the old economy, and this is the brighter future that we're moving to. Um, now, I, I'm not the artist here, but the uh, publisher asked me, any ideas on the book cover? I said, do you know the murals by Diego Rivera in... The Palacio Nacional, uh, just off the Zocalo in Mexico City, where he's got, well, brilliant murals of the history of the Mexican people. And in the last mural, you've got this, the bottom of the picture, you know, you've got the industrial, uh, people being exploited, and all of this smoke, all of this awful scene, and then you've got this much brighter future that Mexico is moving to. So, anyways, I think the... uh, No, I'm not saying this is a Diego Rivera, but it's that that kind of theme. Um, This book is about ecological and energy security. I frame it in terms of security. Why security? Well, we've lived through 30 years of neoliberal ideology that says that markets always make better decisions than governments. Governments should get out of the way, That's code for saying trust the decisions of big corporations rather than democratically elected governments. Voters get out of the way is what it says. That's nonsense. Will corporations and markets protect Canadians from freezing in the dark when the next international oil shortage comes? Will corporations and markets protect Canadians from oil spills, flimsy rail tank cars uh, uh, carrying explosive fracked oil, or regulate that there must be two engineers at any time with a, with a train, especially if one of them is parked above a hill, um, as in lac an Um Will corporations and markets take necessary action to stop the melting of glaciers and Arctic ice, or protect people from raging hurricanes, floods, or devastating droughts? We saw just a week ago the, the, the most powerful hurricane. In the history of the Western Hemisphere, uh, Hurricane Patricia hit uh, Mexico. So we are, climate disruption is real, and we uh, of course we had that terrible drought here in uh, southern Alberta a couple of years ago. Well, of course markets and corporations aren't going to do that. That's why we need governments to make a plan and vigorously enforce it. Governments won't do this on their own, of course. They're either too beholden to big oil, or too frightened to tangle with it. Governments need to be pushed by mobilized citizens who are idle no more. Social movements are absolutely crucial, and I've been an activist all my life. Uh, But movements can't do it all by themselves either. It takes a dynamic duel of uh, committed governments continually pushed by active citizens. Well, Canadians may not realize it, but they are both energy and ecologically insecure. And no one in Canada uh, really talks about it that way. We should. The Americans do it all the time. They warn about the dangers of relying on oil imports and have the world's largest strategic petroleum reserve uh, just off the, the Gulf of Mexico to be released when the next international oil shortage comes. And it will come. Canadian leaders never discuss energy security for Canadians, but Ottawa needs to protect Canadians. Despite our resource bounty, Canadians are energy and ecologically insecure. Three years ago, Peter Mansbridge asked uh, Stephen Harper, does it not seem odd that we're moving oil out of western Canada to either the U.S. or new markets in Asia when a good chunk of Canada itself doesn't have domestic oil? On a certain level, it does seem odd, replied uh, Harper. The fundamental basis, though, of our energy policy is market-driven. And then he went on to say, we're the only supplier, though, that is secure. Well, secure for whom? Canada promises the U.S. oil security. The U.S. has its own national plan, uh, energy and uh, security and independence plan. The question is, if Canada is looking at the U.S. oil security, the US is looking after its own oil security. Who is looking after Canadians? So we are we actually export about we actually import about the same percentage of oil that the United States does. About forty percent of the oil Canadians use is imported. So in Atlanta, Canada is ninety percent and uh, close to ninety percent and in Quebec smaller percentage in Ontario. That's about the same percentage that the US uh, imports. And they have all these plans. You know, they say let's reduce imports, let's have the strategic petroleum reserve. Um, and Canada has absolutely no plans to deal with this. And we are the one that, You know, we live in the colder country. Um, well, all the uh, previous Liberal governments have followed the same resource exporting fetish, and ignored Canadians' vulnerabilities will the new Trudeau government take energy security seriously? Well, I hope so, and they would have to be pushed in order to do that. Um, The current uh, world oil surplus at low price is lulling us to sleep, but it's sowing the seeds for the next international oil shortage and price surge. So what happens uh, uh, when the price of oil is low, of course, is it be, because the, what the oil industry stops uh, drilling. We, we have seen in the, the Sands, Alberta Sands, Shell, and other companies are saying we're not going to go ahead with the project. So there is very little new production going to be coming on. They're, they are completing, uh, if they're halfway built, they, they may complete those. Um, in the United States, the drill count is down at the lowest level in 13 years. Uh, so that their production is actually just starting to fall. That's happening in other parts of the world. And uh, demand is increasing uh, slowly as well. So we're going to be into another. You know, uh, we've lived in Alberta, lived through, through so many you know, booms and busts. Uh, there will be another boom. But, you know, one of the questions is does, Al- does Alberta want to go through another boom or should we get off this and then build a different kind of economy? Um, Will Eastern uh, Canadians get their imported oil when needed? Well, uh, after the sands offers a plan, Canada actually has enough conventional oil, non-fract conventional oil, to supply Canadians. We, it's, a, we, it's about the same amount as Canadians uh, use. It, 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 uh, we don't have enough to to uh, to export it, but we could supply Eastern Canadians with that conventional oil, non-fract oil. And I am, uh, in this book, suggest that plan. And then that is declining, Canadian conventional oil. But we must drop our use of it through conservation at at least the same rate that the conventional oil is is declining. That's uh, a key to the plan. Now, um, uh, Newfoundland actually produces enough oil to supply all of Atlantic Canada, conventional oil, non fract oil. And we don't need a pipeline in New Brunswick. Uh, because you can get you, you can get that oil to to Atlantic Canada by ship. Most Atlantic Canadians live near a coast, and th- and it's much better to do it that way. Because if you build a pipeline, it might take 40 years to pay it off. Advertising you want you then the pipelines will want a throughput of that for 40 years, which then means you know continuing the carbon-based economy. If you if you moved it around by ship, you could then phase those out as demand is falling. Um, we should phase out Canada's oil and natural gas and coal exports for another reason because they're making Canadians ecologically insecure and of course hurting other people as well we we all share uh, a common atmosphere all living things and humans if current uh, pipeline and LNG export schemes proceed there are great dangers of oil tankers Uh, running aground off the turbulent waters off British Columbia's coast, spills from proposed uh, oil pipelines bringing Alberta sands across hundreds of rivers to the west and east coasts. And unlike conventional oil, um, bitumen sinks and uh, can't easily be uh, cleaned up. There was a a spill in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a few years ago, and they still went right to the bottom of the river, and they're still having trouble cleaning it up. And, of course, it runs sh- the, these pipelines run roughshod over many native lands. And we've created uh, an environmental sacrifice zone in northeast Alberta. Uh, and, it, you know, and Alberta, certainly know what, uh, if, if anybody's been up there, just uh, incredible damage. And that is an area that is bigger than the three maritime provinces. This is a huge area that we're, we... Uh, and of course, it's, you know, as it, soon as uh, w- once big oil has, has gotten what it can out of that area, it's going to leave, and who's going to be left with with that mess? Well, the rest of the world finally seems uh, ready to take serious climate action. Last fall, the U.S. and China signed uh, an agreement to uh, to cut uh, uh, carbon uh, emissions. And it's really significant. First of all, they are the two biggest uh, emitters of carbon, and secondly, they were the two holdouts in the Kyoto Accord. Uh, they did not; ne- neither of them agreed to it. So, uh, they, they, uh, it's very significant that they uh, came to that. Uh, Pope Francis's revolutionary encyclical Laudato Si' is a wonderful document. It's turning heads and changing minds. Well, Prime Ministers and Presidents are going to meet about a month from now in Paris and hopefully agree to uh, tough targets. But is Ottawa ready? Will the incoming TRIO government uh, continue the sorry records of the Harper, Martin, and Chrétien governments of pledging good targets um, to reduce Canada's greenhouse gases and then doing nothing to achieve them? Um, So we... uh, what happens is the, the Ottawa will promise these, uh, these good drop in emissions, and then as soon as the goalposts get uh, close, they move them back uh, and say, well, we will pledge it by you know enough in the future again. So in uh, 1997, when Canada uh, signed the Kyoto Accord, this is the Creechian Liberal government, Canada will cut its emissions. Uh, by 6% below the 1990 level by 2012. Well, 2012 comes along, and then 25% above, not 6% below. Well, the Harper government recently um, pledged that uh, uh, they would cut emissions by 30% below the 2005 level by 2030. But when you do the calculation, you actually find that that isn't quite as good a pledge as Pritchard made in 1997, because it would bring us to 2% below the 1990 level. So, we are spinning wheels. Uh, Nothing, you know, from Ottawa, almost nothing is happening. And that is the purpose. Uh, It's a stalling game, so Big Oil can keep raising sands production profits, and with it, Canada's emissions. So, uh, the question is, will the Trudeau government... Bring in tough rules. Um, the pre-election Liberal platform supports a national framework that allows provinces to implement their own greenhouse gas reduction plans. Um, it's got a pledge to uh, to end uh, subsidies to oil. That's a, that's a good thing. Um, but the uh, uh, in the in the pre-election platform, the Liberals did not set a target, and they're not, as far as I can see, not going to. Paris saying, we are going to uh, cut it by this much. It's very much a, a process kind of thing. We're going to talk to native people. We're going to talk to the provinces. That's a good process, but are we actually going to do something? Um, the, uh, the problem with a carbon tax, and a carbon tax I think is, is probably better than cap and trade. Cap and trade, the way the Europeans have done it, has been a, a, a great scheme for uh, fraudsters and uh, schemers. What they do is they give uh, pollution credits, permits to the polluters, and they make money from it. And then they sell fictitious permits in other parts of the world. And uh, uh, you know, a number of places will in the global south will be picked several times over. Uh, you know, and we're going to grow a tree somewhere, and then you know, who cares if 20 years later somebody cuts down the tree? You know, we've. we've uh, anyways, the uh, the carbon tax is probably a better idea, but here is a problem with it. You can't set the carbon tax high enough to deter the emissions of the rich and the well-to-do without absolutely causing hardship, a hardship amongst low-income people. So, uh, so to deter the 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 spurious use by the rich. Uh, lower income people wouldn't even be able to eat to home or get to work. So you've got to have something uh, much tougher than that. Uh, Parliament in 2008 and 2011 promised to bring down Canada's emissions by 80% by 2050. They, they, they passed that twice. It was the Jack Layton bill. It was, bo- it was backed by the Liberals in the Bloc the, of course, the unelected Senate of uh, majority conservative senators uh, blocked it, and it didn't become law. Uh, but the elected, so but we, you know, the, the elected uh, uh, parliament said that that is a goal, and that, that is one I think we should stick to. And the liberals voted for that, and we should uh, hold their feet to the fire. So we've got to have a much uh, tougher program than that, uh, and I have uh, I have an, an outline of how to do that. Um, Canadians waste so much energy, and conservation is key. We talk about renewables, but but, uh, conservation is very important. I don't think we're going to get as much energy. We're going to be a less energy-intensive society uh, once we get off carbon fuels than we are now. Uh, So, now, we could live as well um, now on much less energy. Uh, Sweden and Norway are as cold countries as Canada, very small populations in huge countries, great businesses between them. They get by uh, uh, like something like forty percent less oil than uh, Canadians do, and they have the same standard of living and this is this uh, they 're doing it with today 's technology. We keep hearing. Oh well, we can't do a thing now. We're going to wait for some new magic technological bullet so we can continue doing uh, what we're doing right now. Um, and that we don't have to do that. And that's just a, that's just another stalling tactic. Um, it's magical thinking. Well, as Canadians uh, finally get with the rest of the world to start to make the transition to a carbon society, will uh, prices determine? Who has access to scarcer energy? So, uh, you know, there is. A, a, I, I recommend a, a kind of a, it was a, a, the, the personal tradable energy permits or quotas. Now, there is a, a, there are quotas. If if you have a, something that is scarce, uh, there are quotas. Now, the market d- determines who gets something by by price, what your income is, um, and the. If uh, in a a carbon-constrained world there will be less energy, unless we have a plan, the rich and the military are going to corner most of the supplies and the low-income people uh, will do without even a sufficient amount. And I address that and I talk about energy as a human right. This is being talked about in the Global South especially and we should be adopting it to Canada as we make the transition. Um, Canadians are ecologically vulnerable too. We have the longest coastline in the world and rising sea levels will uh, flood coastal areas. We've seen uh, devastating uh, floods. Um, and of course, uh, whenever I come back and see the Columbia ice fields or other glaciers, it's just, I'm just blown away, you know, uh, horrified at how much they have receded. Um, so after the sands outlines a plan, Uh, It was one that was actually uh, 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 created in Britain, and the British Parliament passed it. It's called Personal Energy uh, Trading Quotas. They passed it into law in 2008. They haven't implemented it. Um, They say it's it's ahead of its time, but they've actually gone through it. They've got the primary legislation there. In 2011, an all-party committee, including the Conservative British Conservatives as well as Labour and the Liberal Democrats, supported it enthusiastically. And it's something that has been, um, you know, really scrutinised. And it's it's an all uh, so uh, basically what it says is that every individual um, will get weekly a free amount of permits, uh, and that uh, if you uh, don't need need all yours. You can you can uh, um, trade them, um, and if you need some more, you can buy some. So at the beginning, it's at least uh, going to be a, a, a redistribution uh, to lower income people. But every year, the carbon budget comes down, uh, so that there is less carbon energy. That doesn't mean you know, and there will be less energy probably overall, but. It doesn't include any other form of energy. So renewable energy is not included in that budget, and that then incentivizes people to produce uh, renewable energy and to conserve, to do both of those things. And it doesn't give any permits to business. Uh, Business and government have to buy theirs. They don't get any permits at all. They have to buy theirs. Um, And the thing, and they worked it out. I mean, they said, you know, when you go and and buy a, a product, if you buy energy... It, it only applies to anything you know when you buy energy. It, it uh, calculates how much carbon energy is in that, and it and it, you is a one uh, one shot one uh, just one transaction. You buy your your uh, product, and then uh, it calculates your personal use of carbon energy in one transaction. Um, so I wrote the book to show the Canadians how disastrous our present course is and a strategy to get out of it. Uh, it's very ambitious, uh, uh, but that is exactly what Canada needs now. Well, what is After the Sands' a unique contribution? Um, there have been many books written, and mine is uh, is part of that. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're all contributing to the thinking and, and uh, how we're going to get to uh, a better future. Um, how many have read uh, Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything? There, yeah, that, uh, that's a wonderful book. Um, it's, uh, as with her other books, it uh, re- redefines the debate. If you haven't read it, I, I recommend you read it. Um, it shows up, the uh, her book shows up the campaigns for climate change deniers, makes a case for cl- uh, uh, urgent climate action and shows the wide power of what she calls blockadia, the movements that are on the, for, on the front lines of stopping disastrous uh, carbon energy projects. Well, After the Sands complements uh, her book, and also, the uh, similarly, the Leap Manifesto. Anybody who's heard of the Leap Manifesto? Uh, that's something else that, that uh, if you should go and Google the Leap Manifesto. 30,000 people have signed this. Uh, Naomi Klein is part of that, but this is a coming together of natives and the settler community in coming to a common uh, way of dealing with uh, getting to a low carbon uh, future and uh, with climate justice. But what does After the Sands add to this? First of all, it frames the analysis in ways that fit the Canadian context. Phasing out Canada's carbon energy exports Ending NAFTA's energy proportionality rule. And uh, what that says, I think most Canadians aren't even aware of this, but when we signed NAFTA, and it came into effect in uh, January 1994, basically it says that Canada must continue to export the same percentage of oil and natural gas and electricity, but it's mainly oil and natural gas, as we have in the last three years. And we can't reduce that. And so we are exporting 70% to the United States. Uh, we are uh, exporting 70% of our oil and over half of our natural gas. Now the natural gas is dropping because the United States uh, natural gas production is surged and they are be- going to become the uh, net exporters of natural gas. Um, it, it doesn't, so there's three countries in NAFTA, but it really, and, and, and it's put in generic terms, but it only applies to Canada, basically as the Canada clause. Mexico said, no way, we're not going to do this, we're, we're a sovereign country, we're going to ter- determine how, what, how we use our oil. It doesn't apply to the United States either, because the United States doesn't export oil and natural gas to any great extent. So, it basically, what it does is it gives the United States first access to the majority of um, Canada's oil and gas um, and says we can't can't stop it. So that is um, we can't get to where we need to go with that clause in place Um, because it's actually in the production of oil and gas that Canada produces as most greenhouse gases. It's not in the transportation that Canadians use. So the, 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 the greenhouse gases come more from the production of of oil and gas than from all the cars and trucks and trains on the, 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 in Canada. Uh, so if you're going to go after greenhouse gases we have to get out of that carbon exporting role. Well, um, so what I, I think we need a campaign to say Mexico's got an exemption. They're in NAFTA. We need an exemption. So we go to uh, Washington Mexico City and we talk to them and we demand that. Well, and if they say no... Well, then Ottawa has got to go with a six-month uh, six uh, notice in their back pocket. So in NAFTA says that any country could pull out of NAFTA uh, after giving 6 months' notice. Now, you might think that's extreme, but in 2008, in the Ohio primary for the Democratic nomination, when Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were going at it really strongly as who was to win the nomination, both of them said, "I will use the, the six-month trigger on NAFTA. We'll pull out. Pull the United States pull out of NAFTA if we can't get our way on the environment with our partners." Mm-hmm. So they've already said that they would do that, and, and we can. So what I suggest is that, is that we go through that, and they, if they and we prepare Canadians for for that in that way. Um, Alberta's, uh, so we also, um, okay, After the Sands also contains that government action on energy and the environment is absolutely necessary. You can't just do it through blockadia. Um, uh, And finally, it addresses energy security. Um, And uh, Naomi Klein's book assumes that renewables can be ramped up to the same level as carbon energy and that we can... Carry on with as much energy. I don't agree that that's true. Uh, I agree that isn't. I think we have to do conservation. But we, as I say, we have so much waste. We do have um, advantages. Um, what one advantage is if we produce, you know, the the new form of energy, the new way of transmitting energy, is going to come be, come through electricity. It matters, of course, how you produce that electricity. Do you, do you produce it from hydro and wind and solar and uh, deep geothermal, you know, those kind of things, or do you produce it from coal and natural gas as uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, it's mainly produced. But it, So we're going to be moving to electricity. We actually produce 60% of the electricity in this country comes from hydro. Now I'm not recommending that we build more big hydro dams to, to stop rivers, but we do have that base and it's great to bring in solar and wind with that because they're both <laughs> intermittent, so when the, the, the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, you open up the dam, and then when, the, when, you're, not, when you're getting those uh, renewable energies, you can then shut off or slow down the flow from the dam. So they, they, they really complement each other incredibly well. Um, but we have this insane thing where you know, provinces produce their own, uh, their own, their own elect- electricity. I don't see why you know Alberta sends, uh, sells oil to BC. Why shouldn't uh, Alberta buy hydro uh, power from uh, from British Columbia, and then we could uh, shut down our coal-fired and natural gas-fired uh, generation. Saskatchewan can get it from Manitoba. Manitoba is another huge amount of hydro. Ontario can get it from Quebec and to a certain extent from Manitoba. Newfoundland has enough hydro power to supply all of Atlantic Uh, So we should be moving to a more self-sufficient national economy. That's what I'm uh, suggesting. Um, Well, after the uh, SANS has ten chapters, I'm going to go through this a bit. One of them talks about strategic petroleum reserves for Canada. Uh, uh, There was a a mine in in Belle Island just off Newfoundland. uh, An abandoned mine that big ships can come there, land there. That is by far the cheapest place to uh, put strategic petroleum reserves. Um, it's actually way cheaper than uh, the salt mines in uh, in uh, Texas um, that the Americans use. Uh, and it could supply. Um, you know, ships can come there and can supply all of Atlantic Canada and uh, it could go up right as far as Quebec City, Montreal. Um, the interesting thing is the Ministry of Energy actually looked at this in the 1970s. This is why I know about this. And it, it, it was recommending this plan. When I spoke to people in the Ministry of Energy recently, they, had, they didn't know this at all. I said, well, you know, Canadian taxpayers paid for this study done 40 years ago. Oh, well, after seven years, we just archived everything that we have. So <laughs> they have no institutional memory of what they've done. But, but we, we could do that. Um, there's a chapter on how Canada can I get out of NAFTA's proportionality clause. I've talked about that. There's another chapter on how Alberta can phase out the sands and build an economy, a, a low-carbon economy. So one of the things we have to remember is that a unit of carbon energy saved creates more jobs than a unit of carbon energy dug up, burned, and emitted. And let, let me explain that. Most of the jobs up in the the sands are actually construction jobs. So it's the building of the project. So if you've got a a large project you may have 4,000 construction workers. When that finishes operations take about 10% the number of workers, it's down to 400 workers. So mainly it's a construction. Now, instead of having those construction workers doing that, uh, and a lot of them come from other provinces, they could be living in their home communities, retrofitting buildings, um, uh, you know, for insulation. We can be building LRT, high-speed train. I noticed that the uh, Brian Mason talked about uh, building a high-speed train between Calgary and Edmonton. That would be a wonderful thing. That would reduce greenhouse gases rather than building another lane and having more cars on that highway. Um, similarly, with the Quebec, uh, with the Windsor. Toronto, Montreal, Quebec City corridor, um, uh, district heating, all of those things. So, and the great thing is, those construction workers would be living in their home communities. Uh, so these jobs would be all across the country. I, I would think that most of them would rather be living in their home communities than living up and forking money on in those work camps and having to uh, fly, you know, fly back. Um, the thing is that Canada has to go in this direction. Either we're going to plan for this, and we're going to do it right so that the Canadians can benefit from this and workers are, are, can move into uh, very productive jobs, or it's going to happen to us. You know, the United States has said, we are not, well, Obama said, we're not going to buy your dirty oil anymore. That's what Keystone XL is. Hillary Clinton has said, uh, which, if she becomes president, she is not going to approve Keystone XL as well. So after Obama made this decision four years ago, we can get all these uh, proposals for projects to to the coast. So any coast bill, uh, west coast, east coast. Uh, of course, Alberta's landlocked, so you've got to get out of the product across other provinces. That's why you need the agreement of other provinces uh, to that. And, of course, goes across a lot of native lands and uh, there's a lot of objection um, to it. But the thing is, that market is supposed to be China, is, is, is the big market for that. There may be other places, but especially China. The Chinese economy is slowing. They're moving from being the workshop of the world to a service-based economy, much more service-based economy, and they're moving to an inwardly directed economy rather than exploiting. They're going to need our resources less. So, And the rest of the world is going to say, you know, we're moving on climate action, we're not going to buy this stuff, uh, some of the most the, the, the dirtiest oil. So, you know, we either make the plan ourselves and have a soft landing, or the, uh, maybe a thudding crash. Um, chapter six explains how Canada can replace uh, big oil with public interest ownership, which have a, has location commitment to Canada. Public interest ownership is uh, broader than public ownership, as in nationalization. Um, so has anybody seen the film uh, the Corporation that was made about ten years ago, and I talked about the the, the terms of incorporation was really a sociopath uh that, that that you would do all you had to do all these destructive well because you 're making a profit and, and and you know whatever whatever destruction you do you don't that 's not part of your mandate um well, so what this says is that we have to have different incorporations for rules for, the, for um, companies in energy and, and environment. So their first commitment is not to profit to their shareholders. It is to be environmentally good to their workers and that kind of thing. Um, and, but anyways, I, I, and, and the great thing about this is that you could, if you could get the same company that sells you oil and natural gas, also sells you conservation, tells you how to get off this. For example, in British Columbia, because there's a hydro, BC Hydro has a monopoly, they buy old fridges uh, because they want you to get off that old fridge and use electricity, and therefore they don't have to build a new, a new generation. So it's on that kind of model. Chapter 7 is entitled uh, Pipelines or Pipe Dreams, and it's got a bunch of maps in it. And I uh, here is what it does is it uh, these maps, uh, no one's done this before, it gives us sort of the history of all the pipelines. Yeah, uh, uh, okay. So let me go
1: through
0: this one first. Uh, this w- in the 1950s to 1970s, the pipelines for natural gas and, and oil went basically east-west. So Canada was, it was supplying, uh, you know, uh, uh, oil and gas, from, mainly from Alberta to eastern Canada and to B.C. Um, and so, so this was, Rebecca was natural gas, and this was, uh, there was a great debate, this was the Canadian route that got all the way to Quebec, an all Canadian to nor- and all-Canadian route in northern Canada, and I don't think most of you can remember the 1957 election, but Diefenbaker was elected because he was in favor of Canadian-owned that line, when the Liberal government was uh, promoting a foreign-owned one. And so there was a... He was, uh, anyways, uh, so that is... Uh, then what happened, and we're going to see the same with oil, after the... Uh, I'll show you those in a minute. From the 1980s through to 2011, all the pipelines went south. So this is after Canada's been exporting in the United States. After 2011... It's then all the proposed pipelines go to the coasts to east and west coasts so they did what what did this uh, okay you could go to the next one please um, so this is a, a pipelines uh, where again most of them are going from the west to the east but this time instead of going through Northern Ontario they go through uh, Chicago and Wisconsin to Saudi, Ontario, and then they come into Ontario this way, and through Enbridge Line Nine, they got into Montreal. Um, it, it went to the, the the Great Lakes, and that that wasn't as much uh, of a, a Canadian line because it sold a lot there in the Midwestern states. But still, it was uh, it, it was getting oil to e- Eastern Canada. Um, then uh, let's see the next one. Okay, this is. Uh, current and proposed oil pipelines from Canada to the United States. So you see the pipelines going south then, right? Um, this is the Keystone XL pipeline proposal, uh, but mostly there was the, the most of the pipelines are going, are going uh, south. So let's we'll see the next one. You want to study that, map? <laughs> Yeah, so that's, so this is the, uh, the, the proposed pipeline thing. So that we're, so not only are these you know these are the existing pipelines, but these are the pipelines going east-west. And, and that natural gas pipeline that I showed you in the first uh, map is uh, the proposal by TransCanada is to turn that into an oil pipeline. It's called Energy East, With that will go to goes to Quebec already but that would be extend, uh, extended to um, uh, St. John newton um, and ex- mainly, ex- mainly for export, and it's mainly to export sands oil. Um, so that's... Okay, so I, I don't want to dwell on that, but um, then... Um, uh, that, that's it for the maps. Thank you. Then uh, the last three chapters on solutions. So this is where the optimism comes in. Um, let me, uh, I've got a chapter, chapter 8 is called Let Goods Be Homespun. Um, (coughs) every successful economic and energy revolution has been accompanied by a cultural revolution that inspires people to change their lives. It's true there must be more windmills and public transit, energy efficiency gains and urban redesign. But even combined, these things won't get us energy security and climate justice. Given the scale of changes needed, we can't do it one light bulb at a time. We need a paradigm shift that challenges the petrolians' power and their dangerous myths. A lower energy, inwardly directed shift is the most convincing and most demanding solution. Change in our relations with nature and coal on different aspects of human possibility, including the empathy gene. Fortunately, such a shift um, is underway. So I talk about that. I also talk about uh, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, John Maynard Keynes was uh, the uh, best-known economist in the 1930s and 1940s, up to the the uh, post-war period. He's best known for uh, advocating demand, uh, demand, greater demand, putting income in the... uh, give lower income people uh, 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 higher uh, incomes so that they can buy uh, goods. But he actually was much more radical in this. In, the, in, the, in, the, in uh, 1933, he wrote an article. And I'm gonna just uh, paragraph or two here. Keynes was critical of foreign ownership because of the divorce between ownership and real responsibility of management. And I quote, I am irresponsible towards what I own and those who operate what I own are irresponsible toward me. He was also critical of international financialization. Quote, Ideas, knowledge, science, hospitality, and travel, these are the things which should of their nature be international, he argued, but do not internationalize everything, especially not finance. Let goods be homespun whenever it is reasonably and conveniently possible, and above all, let finance be primarily national." He also went on to say, departing from most of his contemporaries, Keynes actually opposed what we now call globalization. He recognized that their political communities, and that's another term for countries, need enough autonomy from international forces to gain democratic control over their economies. Quote, we need to be as free as possible of interference from economic changes elsewhere in order to make our own favorite experiments towards the ideal republic of the future. A deliberate movement towards greater self-sufficiency and economic isolation will make our task easier. End of quote. Now Keynes' critique of liberal economic economies economics actually extended presently to the environment. So he was writing this in 1933. We destroyed the beauty of the countryside because the unappropriated splendors of nature have no economic value. We are capable of shutting off the sun and stars because they do not pay a dividend. Um, the the chapter 9 is how much is enough and I I actually have a section saying uh, demand less uh, instead of demand more Um, and then um, chapter 10 goes into a lot of the solutions I've talked about well maybe um, okay I'll just do one final paragraph and then then we can uh, throw it open to questions Uh, so this is uh, in the very last part of the book um Okay, the world's eco energy problems are daunting, but with stingy determination we can overcome them. Challenges are not what deter humans. We are built with the brains and ingenuity to overcome. But we can get sidetracked by bogus ideas or discouraged by profits of doom. Yes, the petrol elites have enormous power and the mainstream media is mainly controlled by those with big money, alive with big oil. So are most governments. But we have one thing on our side. Um, this is a struggle for our lives. Those of our children, and of all other living things. We can, if we can win over most people to the cause, we will have the numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's it. So are there any questions? <laughs> yes, we will make, uh questions.